Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Hey everyone from KQED Public Radio. This is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. And today on The Breakdown, we're going to talk to one of the Democrats lining up to replace Senator Dianne Feinstein. And unlike some of the other candidates, she's never run for or held political office. Lexi Reese is here in studio with us, a longtime tech executive. She spent many years at Google and has worked on helping small businesses access capital and resources, including at her most recent job where she focused on helping Main Street businesses get COVID-19 relief. Lots to talk about there, Scott. But first... We have been watching from afar this dust up between the Temecula School Board and Governor Gavin Newsom. Back in May, the school board refused to adopt new textbooks that the state and a curriculum that the state has set out, um, saying that it's because Harvey Milk, uh, the gay rights, civil rights leader, was included in one of the supplemental sections. The governor has now hit back, threatening them with a million and a half dollar fine, saying he's going to buy the textbooks for the district anyway. There was a big meeting this week. The board held firm. Uh, I, I guess part of the challenge here for Newsom is that some of those threats are actually contingent on a new state law passing that's not a law yet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, AB 1078 by Corey Jackson, a freshman assemblyman from down in that area, Riverside County, Inland Empire area. And it would allow the state to fine school districts for not complying with uh, curriculum. But also, uh, you know, this, if, honestly, this is you have to wonder, uh, this is the kind of dust up over an issue that you don't really expect in California. But it's a reminder that there are very very red parts of our state, Temecula being one of them. And there are three very conservative members of that school board that have really dug their their heels in on this issue. And, you know, it's not just whether Harvey Milk is in the, is in the text and the curriculum. It's also about how they described Harvey Milk. Harvey Milk was an icon for the gay and lesbian community, first openly gay elected official. And they described him as sort of a pedophile, you know, which is... The school board, the school not, board. not the curriculum. No, the school board, right, exactly. And so, you know, it's it's a very incendiary sort of way. And very, we've, we've heard this in other parts of the country. We've seen issues like this play out in Florida. And what's interesting is now you've got Newsom telling a local district, what to do, something that Ron DeSantis has done in Florida on other issues like critical race theory and gotten a lot of flack from Gavin Newsom. 
Do you watch Stranger Things? I feel like Florida is the upside down world of California, you know, <laughs> like it's it's just like everything the is Texas. the opposite. No, I mean, I think that's that's interesting. I mean, two things to know. One, you said, you know, people don't expect this in California. California is everything, right? Like we encompass all of America. And so I think that that is true that a lot of people maybe watching from afar wouldn't expect it because they're basing it on what they see, sort of the, how the national media portrays us. And it is true that, you know, it is a very blue state in sheer numbers. But when you go to different parts, it is a it's a different world on Trump the ground. Trump won like 25 counties out of the 50. Exactly. I think the other thing, to your point, like, I, I do think this is an interesting question for Democrats, which is, are they kind of taking the bait in a way that can undercut their arguments against some of the things that people like Ron DeSantis are doing, right? So if you are so upset that, that you know, someone like DeSantis is supporting the tying the hands of teachers in a state like that, the don't say gay ban, um, then is this kind of, you know, this... Uh, same the side of the, side. Other, yeah. the same coin well, to say we're going to control what locals yeah, do. Yeah, and they're both using it, or I'm sure Newsom will if he hasn't already, using it to raise money. Uh, there will be a fundraising email going out. And, you know, in, in Newsom's defense, he has been on the cutting edge of a lot of issues, including same-sex marriage when he was mayor of San Francisco. But, you know, you have to wonder, too, like, where are the kids left in all of this? Oh, you know, 100%. I mean, this uh, the, the Harvey Milk information, it wasn't – it's supplemental material <laughs> that is optional for the teachers. And it was already uh, used in a pilot program in the school district that 45 teachers approved. Parents did not object. Uh, and so it's kind of, you know, Well, they're saying this – the, yeah, parents need to be involved. But, like, they did it. They went through the correct process. Um, and I do think, you know – to your point, it feels like these three members who were recently elected, who were elected after being, um, you know, kind of pushed to run by a conservative pastor down there who's been very involved in politics. Like, I think they wanted this fight. Sure. Right. I mean, this yeah. was not a lot of what they're saying is kind of not like <laughs> rational things that you would very hear incendiary. at a board. Yeah, yeah. very insane. And we should say that one of the parents is now threatening a recall against uh, several of those school board members that voted against the curriculum. And that legislation, by the way, that you mentioned uh, at the beginning, is it would require, it's an urgency measure, so it would require two-thirds of vote of the legislature. Now, Democrats have a two-thirds uh, majority, but, you know, some Democrats come from pretty purple districts. I'm yeah, not I mean, sure they're going to want to put their necks on the line. You know who stoked those? Corey Jackson, that author. This was a, a bill to, to kind of go after districts that were banning books. Nobody really cared about it. It seemed like it was dead on arrival until the governor started. <laughs> Swooped yeah. in and was like, end. let's revive that. So uh, Jackson's going to get some attention, if nothing He's else, happy. when they come back <laughs> to session in the fall. OK, enough of that. We are going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll be joined by U.S. Senate candidate Lexi Reese. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. 
to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer. Today we're excited to welcome Lexi Reese. She has built a career in tech, but joined the crowded Democratic field running to replace U.S. Senator Dianne Feinstein. Lexi Reese, welcome to Political Breakdown. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, we noticed you kind of nodding along with our brilliant commentary at the (laughs) top. And I just wanted to say, uh, ask if you have anything to add to that. What are your thoughts here? I mean, it does seem like Democrats are kind of in a tough spot here. We are in a tough spot. I was nodding. I was reminded of Wanda Sykes' quote. She said, until a drag queen walks into a school and beats eight kids to death with a copy of To Kill a Mockingbird, I think you're focusing on the wrong I think they, uh, I think what... Uh, <laughs> Two firsts right there. <laughs> <But> go ahead. <laughs> um, I think what this reminds me of is we just, the the food fighting that's happening in politics. It's not to say that this is, is not an issue. The banning of books is representative of a very conservative strategy that has been effectively executing dangerous ideas about women and people of color, and it... It happens at every level of government, and I think I'm um, getting into government now because I think of a way, a way to pull us out of that. Do you think the governor's making a mistake, threatening or promising, depending on your point of view, to send textbooks down there with Harvey Milk curriculum? I think the real issue for California and the issue that is most important to Californians is economic security. I think right now California's economy is a hot mess. We are we are working harder and longer than ever. But until and unless we solve that, people are going to be so frustrated and we getting involved in local issues like that. It's not to say that it's not the right thing to do, but I think we have to prioritize how does California become a more livable state for all people? Because right now people are leaving in droves and this dream of coming here to secure a better life for your kids is getting more and more elusive. All right. Well, we'll come back to policy and and this race, but I do uh, want to talk a little bit about you know, where you came from and how you ended up sitting here in this radio studio with us. Tell us, first of all, where did you grow up? I grew up a little bit of a a mutt, if you will. I started in Philadelphia, but my dad was a Sears store manager, Um, started in the appliance department of Sears, worked his way up to be a manager, and we moved with his job to different places. uh, And he lost his job um, which uh, was the reason for my family sort of moving into a tailspin. My mom, without a college degree, starting to work. And we lived in different states at that time. So I was in Cleveland at that moment, and my mom was in Pennsylvania. Oh, wow. hmm. um, and that sort of is the origin story hmm. of... Yeah. What, uh, what did that do to your parents' relationship? You know, having him lose his job, I mean, that can be a real, you know pivot point for families, obviously, economically and otherwise. Yeah, I think it put an incredible amount of stress on their relationship. My mom, again, she went back to work, her career started taking off, and he had a really hard time finding his footing. And what he would say is, I didn't just lose the money, I lost my dignity. He just couldn't get the confidence back. Um, that I think was part of why their relationship ultimately ended in divorce. Um, But simultaneously, my siblings and I were sort of trying to find our footing, too. And my brother and sister both uh, became addicted to drugs and alcohol. My my brother died in 2017. 
Yeah, I know you've talked about that before, but I'm mm-hmm. wondering, I mean, was that something that happened while you guys were all still at home as teenagers? No, but his struggle with addiction began while we were struggling as a family to find more uh, footing in the world. Mm-hmm. So when my dad and mom split, people were in different places, and I think everybody was looking for a foothold Um, And that was a foothold that became available and I think, you know, was something that he didn't die until much later. But the path towards um, giving people the ability to find a way to hold their families together by making sure – and this should be a fundamental right, not a privilege. How do you keep good family-sustaining jobs as something that everyone in the U.S. has access to? And again, I have a plan for how that can work. Uh, And I think it's not the cause of my brother's death, but I certainly think that part of that insecurity was a direct line to it. So many families have struggled or have someone that they know who has struggled with uh, drug addiction. We're here in San Francisco. It's a huge issue on the Mm -hmm. streets in the Tenderloin, South of Market. What did you take from that, you know, Mm -hmm. that is still with you today as a person, but also as a candidate for the U.S. Senate? Yeah. So I took that when you when you lose a paycheck, you lose a lifeline. And my whole career, 27 years, has been how do you give people lifelines? How do you give people who don't normally have access to getting money to start and grow their own business? Um, And how do you give people pay equity and health care? So I actually started my career in film, filming about adolescent prostitutes living in uh, poverty and then moved into microfinance. So folks as I say I've not been in politics before. I have not served in an elected official position, but I was on the Hill advocating for people to get money to start and grow their own business, $100 million of microfinance. And ever since at American Express, at Google, at a company called Gusto, I have always been fighting for small and medium business to get real access to real growth opportunities because, again, it's so deeply personal for me that if families can thrive in their work, they can thrive in their lives. I mean, do you have any thoughts, though, about once somebody does fall into addiction, how we as a society, as as somebody in government, um, can help them? Because I think that's something that is really a challenge right now for a lot of people. I mean, you see these stories of parents who are trying to save their kids. They have resources um, and people just don't you know, want the help. It's, it's really challenging. Addiction and gun violence are epidemics. They are epidemics in the country and they need to be studied as such. I think the way that we treat addicts will be looked at as so draconian in 20 years from now. There are so many varieties of addiction and basically our answer to addicts is go do 12 steps. Mm-hmm. That doesn't work for everyone. And I think we will eventually, once we put enough funding into it, and similar with gun violence, we should study it under the Center for Disease Control as epidemics and look at real root causes of why are we, why are these deaths so prevalent when they are also so preventable? Hmm. You know, I wasn't intending to do a deep, deep dive on drug policy. But, <laughs> yes, neither uh, was I. <laughs> neither was I. But I'm curious because that this is a big issue now in San Francisco and really in the nation, but especially here where we have a new DA who is arresting users, uh, the mayor, wanting to force them into treatment. So far, they're not really wanting to do that. Uh, there was a series in the Chronicle looking at wh- people coming up from Central America to, to – to, 
to, to sell drugs here in the city. Mm-hmm. What are your, like, how do you get to the root? What do you think the and root you problem in the is here? office when mm-hmm. you were younger mm-hmm. as well, right? In mm-hmm. Manhattan, yeah. So what, what's the root problem? And like, what role is there for the federal government, which is, you know, you're running for a federal office? Yeah, I think the, I think, look, that's, that's a heavy question that I'm not going to be able to do justice to. I would say, again, I think... One of the major root causes for people to look for for uh, for security is economic insecurity. And so right now we have more jobs than people, and yet we have the highest economic fragility that we've had in my lifetime, meaning one in four American households, 50% of black and brown households, are living an economically insecure life, which means they have to choose between one basic good and another in the last year. So not surprisingly, 70% of people feel the system, by which people mean capitalism and democracy, is rigged against them. Okay, that's that. that this is the stuff of real importance that I want to make the food fights that are now happening in politics. I want to focus on that. We have more jobs than people, yet more economic insecurity. Consequently, people feel the system is rigged against them. You talked about Trump. Trump was talking to this need, people's frustration about how am I working harder and longer than ever, doing everything you asked me to do. And as one teacher said, with her hand up against her her neck, I just feel like I can't get by, like Mm -hmm. I'm struggling. I'm struggling to just make it. And that can't be. My whole plan on what the federal government can do, make work work for people and businesses, hold the government accountable for real outcomes like healthcare and education, and then protect women and families from this dangerous onslaught of misogyny and hatred that is coming in the form of forced pregnancy and open carry. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer. We are talking with Lexi Reese. She is a Democratic candidate for U.S. Senate. So let's talk about why you got in this race and how you plan on positioning yourself. Uh, we mentioned you're a Democrat. There are, um, you know, several other candidates, three members of Congress um, who, you know, have pretty high name ID and are pretty similar when it comes to their policies. How do you want to distinguish yourself from them? Are you running to the right of them? Uh, Like, what are you thinking about when it comes to making that case? Yeah, I mean, I'll let the pundits describe how it shows up. And I would just say, if you like how California is going, if you like it, that we're the highest uh, poverty state in the nation when you factor in cost of living, that housing is out of reach and is the reason why cost of living is so high and we have terrible education outcomes for low-income kids. And if you're a black um, woman, you're twice as likely to die, even if you're wealthy while giving birth, um, as is your baby, than a white or Asian person. If you like our scorecard in California, then you have really good choices. And if you don't, then I think Californians deserve an alternative. And the Californians do want that alternative. This race is wide open. 50% are undecided. And though these other candidates have big name ID among funders, voters are largely unaware of who's running. But, you know, I have to say, you mentioned the economy, and I think you described Mm -hmm. California's economy as being a train wreck or Mm -hmm. something to that effect. Um, You know, you've talked about the food fights at the local level. Mm -hmm. Why aren't you running for governor? Mm -hmm. I mean, because that... Right, you're going to be one of 100. Yeah, I mean, you can't really affect... If you want to affect the the economy and policies that affect the economy in California, Sacramento is the place to be. I, I, I don't think that it's not a place, obviously, that you can make a lot of change. I think we need... We need uh, 
we need more representative leaders at every level of government. And I'm not saying I'm more effective because I am coming from the outside, though I am coming from the outside. I'm just saying we need people who have done lots of different things if we're going to get different outcomes. The Senate was where a lot of direction for the country is coming from, and we're getting terrible directions. You ask, why am I doing this? Last June, I'm looking at my daughters, who at the time are 13 and 9, and Roe v. Wade just got rolled back. And our answer to Uvalde and Buffalo, terrible gun violence shootings, the Supreme Court says, let's open carry. And I'm looking at them, and for the first time in my life, 27 years of working has given me a feeling that I'm in control. But I'm looking at them, and I'm saying, you have less rights than I have in my life and that your grandmother fought for. And I felt so disempowered and so out of control. And then I thought, why is that? And it's because there is a coalition in the Senate that's been particularly effective about slamming this agenda that is anti-woman, anti-person of color, anti-economically marginalized person down our throats. And we need people in the Senate who will have a agenda that is different, that speaks to people. But and I mean, all due respect, Lexi, yeah, yeah, Adam Schiff agrees with you on gun control. Barbara Lee agrees with you on gun control. Katie Porter agrees with you on gun control and abortion rights. There's a filibuster in the Senate. Like, like, make, like, what would you bring that's different from... The ability to work well with other people to get things done. I, I, I think that my, my competitors in this race, I respect them greatly. I think they're incredible in the House. I think the polarization uh, that has been created on both sides of the mm-hmm. aisle has it has created a dynamic where to to work across the aisle, you've got to begin with what is the outcome we're trying to get and do people actually want to work with you to get things done? And I think that's the, that's the real difference. It, we can all say the same thing. Mm-hmm. But the question is, I have a track record of when small businesses weren't getting aid in the pandemic, I worked with lots of different people, $2.5 billion of aid to primarily women and people of color who weren't getting it before. So yeah, one of the things that, yeah. you know, Congress can do is raise the minimum wage, which mm-hmm. hasn't been done in quite a while. Are you for mm-hmm. that or against it? For it. And I think... How the, high? How high should it be? The, I mean, it should be adjusted to the living wage of ZIP plus four using the MIT living wage calculator. And the Senate, until they do that, should get paid the minimum wage of, at the federal level. Well, let me ask you about that. Yes. That's not that a vote getter. Yeah. <laughs> that is not a way to work with your colleagues. <laughs> you know, where you, get, you're, you have 99 opponents right there. You know, so I don't know. I don't know if I, I I mean, I think that we we first of all, I'm 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 running to represent Californians. So I think Californians understand the hypocrisy of being held to standards that their elected officials can't. If seven dollars and 25 cents is good enough and we can't pass a higher wage, then then it's good enough. And that's what we as elected officials t- should get paid. We ha- This is the problem. I would be the 26th woman, one of the only working women with young kids, the only technologist, which we haven't talked about, or one of the few who understands deeply technology and technology business models. And if you don't really understand the consequences of the, of the actual impacts of the laws that are being passed, I think it's really hard to represent people because you're simply not representative. I love your point about technology. I think we see again and again 
almost it's almost comedic sometimes when you watch these yes. Senate hearings of like how little how do you make money Facebook <laughs> they have of social media networks and AI and all these things but on the other hand you know a lot of that confusion seems to have allowed tech to escape regulation Absolutely. that other industries talk about that what are your proposals what do you want to see happening on a federal level around you know regulating technology um, of all sorts pick pick which one you want to talk about first I sure suppose. sure well let's let's root this in ec- the economy first and then I'll talk about social media but if you have this scenario as I told you that in general not in every industry not in every state we have more jobs than people because demand Demographically, we're getting older. COVID people died. Immigration, we've blocked 3.5 million people out of the state who should otherwise be working in it. And you introduce artificial intelligence, which gives you the ability to potentially solve your labor shortage because now I can not hire writers and I maybe don't need background actors, which is, you know, what folks are striking about. And I think very reasonably asking for a conversation about this. You effectively are giving corporations an ability to solve their labor shortage, which is what businesses are looking to do. Mm -hmm. And that's a very reasonable thing for a business to want to do. But what will happen is exactly what happened in the 70s when we allowed free trade for businesses to outsource, outsource and offshore their labor. The businesses will grow. Their profits will grow. The economy, the U.S. productivity, will grow as a result. People's earnings will flatten. So if you say right now when people are working, and they're economically insecure, and they're, they feel the system is rigged against them, and then you say they're not working, and how much more insecure will we be? We have got to address that. So the for, as, a, as a matter of regulation, there is no easy way to regulate AI, but we have to have representatives who are able to talk about artificial intelligence, not as this boogeyman, it has the potential to do amazing things, but it could cause disinformation and economic dislocation, people losing their jobs at large scale. I could do that. Mm-hmm. As a matter of policy, I would bring a full field force across Congress and the major departments impacting this, and we would have a tech-forward approach on, okay, let's really think about, and and not just think about, let's know that in the last 20 years of tech development, we may have wanted things to positively impact the world, we know the negative consequences now. So we shouldn't say maybe they will happen. We should prepare that they will happen and then work backwards of how we're going to prevent it. One of the big problems in this country, and it's driven in part by tech, is you have a concentration of wealth in fewer and fewer people. Sure. Income disparity, huge. Sure. And there's been- regions, yeah. (laughs) What's that? And regions, too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so there's been talk about, you know, maybe we should tax- you know, the the Amazons of the world, the Jeff Bezos of the world more and mm-hmm. somehow redistribute the wealth mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. of the dislocation mm-hmm. of workers mm-hmm. and other things. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts about that? I think the the better way to stabilize the economy and create more security for more people is to provide something called a human capital tax credit. So I think when you have uh, businesses that invest in their workers and they're investing in their skills and training and workforce development and they're paying for their health care and they're paying for child care and they're paying for, in some cases, elder care. When businesses are, are taking care of their employees, we should give them a tax credit. You get an R&D tax credit for investing in software, you should get a human capital tax credit. That may seem very wonky. That is huge. Because you're actually taking what many employers want to do, especially the majority of small businesses who actually want to invest in their own workers, um, 
and you're giving them a reason to do that rather than what some people say is raise raise income or raise uh, wages. Raising wages is great, but it'll also threaten their business model. So this aligns incentives so more people are taken care of. All right. I want to switch gears for our last couple of questions. You mentioned you have two girls, a husband with a successful career. Mm-hmm. And I've heard you talk when you were still in tech about just how thoughtful you and your husband try to be about how you approach challenges. How are you guys approaching this campaign as a family? Mm. Um, thank you for asking that. And and um, if you're listening, <laughs> Amelia, I love you. Um We talked about it as a family, and I have been really open. I mean, my mother was very open with us about politics and the state of politics in the country. The girls, um, my my, uh, oldest child, who's 14, her first nightmare was the night of Hillary debates. When Trump was uh, pacing, yeah, it was was a terrible scare. It was really, it was, it was terrifying. And I think um, the girls and Corby, they all understand that I am deeply uh, committed to leaving the world better for them, even if if it comes at at a at a sacrifice, the sacrifice of not seeing each other, the sacrifice of not, you know, making as much money as potentially we could if we stayed in the private sector. I'd say if they were here, they would say this is mom's calling, and we we miss her when we don't see her, and at the same time, we've never seen her happier or mm. more committed. We're short on time, but we wanted to ask you about uh, a, a policy, a work policy at Gusto, which is people are invited, as the website says, invited oh to take oh their God. shoes off, uh. and that includes not just visitors but workers. So do you support that policy? And, like, what's the worst that has happened as a result of that policy? You're killing me. Do you know how many years we work to have our press not talk about <laughs> the foot? The get foot? A, get so you're not bringing that to the in all reality, it was actually really started because all the founders came from No Shoes household. But it was this humbling act of, of uh, sort of a moment of mindfulness because no matter who you were, and there were some you know fancy dancy investors, and they said we have to take off our shoes, and we're like yes. But I'm happy to say in my time we changed it to slippers. So, <laughs> so in case you have weird foot issues, don't worry, you should go work at Gusto. <laughs> Uh, Lexi Reese, Democratic Senate uh, candidate. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. That was very fun. That's going to do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. Our engineer today is Jim Bennett. Guy Marzarati is our producer. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading!
Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable human centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.